1: I'm Callie Crossley, this week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, summertime and the reading is all about the popular genre, young adult or YA, in this special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. For the next hour, we will explore the world of books targeted to a young audience, but also eagerly consumed by adult readers. YA, or young adult fiction and nonfiction, is targeted at older teens positioned in the editorial space between books for children and adults, but fully half of the readers are adults, drawn to the common themes of family dynamics, friendship, first love, and coming of age. YA authors tell their stories through multiple literary genres, including science fiction, romance, memoir, horror, fantasy, graphic novel, mystery, and historical fiction.
2: Once upon a time, in a greenhouse at the top of the world, my mother and father were waiting for me to be born. You're in charge. Don't forget what's at stake. Now the decision was hers to make. Should he be sent to the lion?
1: She'd probably descend from the low clouds of this foggy Boston morning with some sort of alien doomsday spacecraft and vaporize me. Those were authors Nicole L'Esperance reading her YA book, The Wide Starlight, Isabel Ibanez reading Woven in Moonlight, Amana Karishi reading The Lady or the Lion, and Ryan Lasala reading from Bedazzled. These days, the bestseller lists are likely to feature at least one YA book. Top-selling YA books of all time are the Harry Potter series. Other top sellers include The Hate You Give from relative newcomer Angie Thomas and One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Both the Potter series and Thomas' debut novel were made into movies young adult books are more popular than ever now, that modern authors have expanded the themes and settings of the genre with multicultural narratives, stories ripped from the headlines, and contemporary settings and protagonists who are people of color. Add to that exciting writing and authentic voices, drawing enthusiastic fans to the pages. All are perfect additions to your summer reading list in this last month of summer. Joining me remotely, three authors whose YA stories are compelling tales of heart, history, and honesty. Crystal Maldonado is a writer by night and marketer and social media manager by day. Her debut novel, Fat Chance, Charlie Vega, is a coming-of-age story featuring a biracial teen. The book earned a featured review on the list best fiction for young adults. Maldonado is the co-founder of the online website Positively Spidden. She has been published in Latina Magazine, The Hartford Current, and Dogster. The University of Connecticut graduate lives in western Massachusetts with her husband and baby daughter. Hello, Crystal.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: I'm so delighted to have you. Brittany Morris is the author of the YA novel Slay and Marvel's Spider-Man, Miles Morales, Wings of Fury. Her latest YA book is The Cost of Knowing, a gripping family story featuring two black male teens, which has received starred reviews from Kirkus and Publishers Weekly. Morris, who graduated from Boston University with a degree in economics, is also the founder and former president of the Boston University Creative Writing Club. She lives in Philadelphia with her husband and son.
3: Hi, Brittany. 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 Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So glad to have you. Melinda Lowe is the author of six YA novels, including her latest, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, set in San Francisco's Chinatown during the 1950s Red Scare. Telegraph Club, which has received eight starred reviews, was also named by Oprah Magazine, one of 50 LGBTQ books that will heat up the literary landscape in 2021. The three-time finalist for the Lambda Literary Award also writes a bi-weekly newsletter, Lo and Behold. She graduated from Wellesley College and earned master's degrees from both Harvard and Stanford. She lives in Massachusetts with her wife, Amy Lovell. Welcome, Melinda. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have all of you, so we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to start with you, Crystal, because you're the newbie here. This is, your, <laughs> this is your debut novel. So what inspired you to write a YA novel?
2: So I have always been kind of obsessed with YA novels myself as a reader. So I loved reading YA stories, especially contemporary stories and romance stories. I just loved watching these protagonists figure themselves out and and kind of figure out who they are and figure out their place in the world. And then also the benefit of watching them fall in love was wonderful. So for me, um, I never got to see a character that looked Like me or shared identities with me as that heroine or that main character. So I'm fat. I am also biracial. I'm Puerto Rican. um, I have glasses. So all of these things felt like they were things that made me an other in a lot of ways. And I wanted to write a love story that featured somebody who shared some of those identities with me and who we got to see be somebody who is desired and who falls in love with herself and also has someone fall in love with her too. Well,
1: that's great. Now, I want you to describe your book very briefly with no spoilers. And my listeners do not like the spoilers, so we're going to be very careful in this discussion. So tell me what your book is about and your main character just briefly.
2: Okay, so this is about 16 year old Charlie Vega. Um, she is a bookworm, she's fat, she's Puerto Rican, and she's desperately looking for love through friendship, families, and with herself. And she's hoping to get that first kiss.
1: All right. Moving on to you, Brittany Morris. Your book is The Cost of Knowing. But first, same question. What inspired you to write YA to begin with? This isn't your first book, but so what led you to that?
3: So I've always been really fascinated with the YA genre. I personally, as a child, was raised in a very sheltered environment. I was very restrictive, couldn't really experience a whole lot of media. And so when I became a teenager, maybe 16 or 17, that was really a huge turning point in my life because it was when I had to juxtapose everything that I had been taught in my little bubble that I grew up in with the real world, which is what I was experiencing applying to colleges and everything. So I love writing about people who are in that situation where they're kind of, having to span the gap between childhood and preparing to enter into adulthood and comparing what they've been taught with what they're learning for themselves. Um, I just think it's such an exciting time and it's full of big decisions and big questions and just a whole lot of fun. So I love writing in that genre
1: hmm. So, again, a brief description of your book and your main characters. No spoilers.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so the cost of knowing is about 16 year old Alex Rufus, who can see into the future of any object that he touches with the palm of his hand and his little brother, Isaiah, who is 12, who can see into the past. And everything changes when Alex sees a vision of his younger brother dying in the next few days. So it becomes a race against time to get to the bottom of this 400-year-old family curse and figure out what it means to be a joyful Black boy in the present. I had a lot of fun writing it. I'm super excited to share it with everyone.
1: Excellent. All right, Melinda Lowe, what drew you, now six YA novels later, to writing YA to begin with?
0: Well, for me, it was actually kind of an accident. My first novel, Ash, was a lesbian retelling of Cinderella. And when I wrote it, I did not read YA. I was, I was an adult. I was in my 20s. And I kind of just wrote the book that I wanted to read. And then when it came time to submit it to agents, to find an agent for publication, it turned out to fit best within the YA category. So that's where it's sold, And so one book leads to another. And that's kind of that's where I've been ever since.
1: OK, so now you describe the plot of your book last night at the Telegraph Club. Briefly, no spoilers. Sure. <laughs> No spoilers. So this is about a
0: 17-year-old girl named Lily Hu. She lives in San Francisco's Chinatown. Uh, It's in the 1950s. She's obsessed with rocket science like her aunt. She really wants to be a rocket scientist. And she's also starting to think that she might be a lesbian. So she and her friend Kath from school start going to this lesbian bar called the Telegraph Club, which is only a couple of blocks away from Chinatown in North Beach. And the story is really about coming of age in the 1950s as a queer Chinese-American girl. And it's also very much a love story. So I'm really excited to talk about it.
1: All right. So one of the things that it just makes YA, I think, so compelling, probably this is the thing that draws adults to it, are the stories are seem to really be set in the now. Even your story, Melinda, that is historical fiction, addresses issues that a lot of us, including certainly young people, are grappling with in the moment. And the authenticity is what just rings true to me. I just first want to compliment all of you for the dialogue, because even though I've never written a YA book, I would never attempt to, I've read some bad ones, and it's the dialogue (laughs) (laughs) that falls down. You can't believe the characters. But what makes all of your characters so amazing is the dialogue. And so, Crystal, let's start with you about how do you get on the page the words that are so authentic from people who are quite a different age from you. I mean, it really, really does resonate and sound wonderful.
2: Well, thank you. I really appreciate that because I think that's one of the toughest things about writing YA is Writing the story you want to tell, but also doing it in an authentic way. And so it feels like an actual teenager and not like a (laughs) 33-year-old who's writing it, right? So for me, I have the benefit of actually working with students for my day job. So I work in higher ed. So they're a little older, but very quick to put me in check when I (laughs) am using language that's outdated or they're just so cool. They keep me kind of with like conversations and with trends. And so that is a huge help. But I think there's something really universal about the YA genre in general. So these like feelings, experiences, all of the firsts that come with being a teenager, I think that kind of transcends decades. And it doesn't matter kind of when you grew up. Those feelings and experiences are the same and you can relate to it no matter what age you are. And I kind of like to time travel a little when I'm writing by listening to music that I liked when I was a teenager. Mm. And it helps bring all that angst and all the, the heartbreak and all those feelings back up to the surface. And then I can kind of channel that in my writing.
1: And I want to be clear to my listeners that when I say dialogue in this context, I mean not just the exchanges with other characters, but also the interior dialogue of the characters feels very authentic to the character as well. So with that in mind, Crystal, let's have you read a little bit from Fat Chance Charlie Vega from page 19. Sure. Now, just to put this in a little context, Charlie is wrestling with her mother around her weight issues and still coping with the aftermath of her father's having died.
2: So my mom swears by these shapes. That's what got her thin. She says to anyone who'll listen, she loves them so much that she's become a consultant for the company. And now she sells them on Facebook as part of what's definitely not a pyramid scheme. It's a pyramid scheme. For a while now, she's been trying to get me to drink them too. She tells me if I just replace one meal a day with them, I can really start to see some results on my body. My unruly body that needs to be controlled, I guess. And I can finally start living. Like it's impossible for me to live now in this body I have. I'm ashamed that I've often look at my body and secretly agree. See, the thing about my mom is that she was fat until suddenly she wasn't, or at least that's how it felt to me. I feel like I woke up one day and the mom I knew was gone and replaced with the newer, thinner model, but the change didn't actually happen overnight. Perhaps I didn't want to see what was right in front of me, that my mother's body was slowly shrinking, looking less and less like mine every day. Because I couldn't or wouldn't acknowledge that she was achieving the very thing I waste so much time longing for. It went like this My dad got sick and died. My mom wallowed for a long time. We both got fatter together in our sadness. She had trouble feeling good about herself. She decided to throw herself into losing weight. And then, bam, things were different. I guess there were a few other things that happened in between, but that's the gist. It didn't help that my mom and I were never especially close. People always said that I was Hector's girl through and through. I inherited Poppy's brown skin, dark eyes, curly hair, and sense of humor. My mom, white with light brown eyes and straight hair, not as easily amused as us, would sometimes grumble about the fact that she felt left out of our jokes.
1: That's my guest, Crystal Maldonado. She's reading from her YA novel, Fat Chance, Charlie Vega. Brittany Morris, dialogue, both that which is exchanged between characters and interior dialogue. How do you make it so authentic?
3: I'll agree with Crystal here and say that voice is difficult to nail in any scenario. And then to have to do it in a genre that is for a completely different age group that you're in is tough. But the way I do it is twofold. So one, I do take in a lot of content made by teenagers on TikTok and in the gaming community. I watch a lot of video game Let's Plays on YouTube and I listen to how they talk and what they love and what they're fascinated by in the news and just in the world in general. And then the second part is to hold what they hold in esteem to give it some weight, right? So I see a lot of people who make content for teenagers scoff at what teenagers love. So people often love to disparage TikTok and a few years ago, Snapchat and Fortnite dances and kind of laugh at what, you know, the kids these days are into. But it's like, if you're going to make content for those people, you have to love what they love and you have to find it, you know, beautiful and interesting in some capacity, even if it's not for you. So that's kind of how I stay in touch with newer generations and get as close as possible to their voice.
1: All right. Well, I want to uh, have our listeners hear a little bit of that voice. So let's go to page five for you.
3: All right. I remember a vision I had during a camping trip three years ago. A vision I'll never forget. Me, Aunt Mackie, my little brother Isaiah, my best friend Sean, and his little sister, who's now my girlfriend, Talia, spent a weekend at Starved Rock State Park out in Oglesby. Aunt Mackie was grilling hot dogs, and she asked me to put the bag of buns on the picnic table. I picked them up and caught a vision of Isaiah slipping on the bag, falling, and breaking his arm. So despite the risk of flies and flying charcoal pieces landing on them, I took all the buns out of the bag, Left them open on a plate and tossed the bag in the garbage. Crisis averted, I thought. But then Aunt Mackie asked Isaiah to run the trash to the dumpster. The crumpled up little bun bag rolled out at some point while he walked, and on his way back, his foot found the slippery plastic. Another time, while walking past a construction site, I tried to prevent a beam from falling and bursting a fire hydrant, which I'd touched, by yelling up at the foreman to watch out. If he hadn't been so distracted, he might have caught it. No matter what I do, it doesn't help. The mess happens anyway, and I just end up embarrassed, often because it looks like I caused whatever I'd been trying to prevent. So I've stopped trying, better and less humiliating, to just lie low and let
1: fate happen. That's my guest Brittany Morris. She's reading from her YA novel, The Cost of Knowing. The second part of that title is The Past is Only Half Your Story. Over to you, Melinda Lowe. Managing the dialogue, both the exchange between characters and the internal dialogue set in the age group that you are targeting.
0: Yeah, you know, what I think about this, I have, first of all, I've been very fortunate in that I have largely written fantasy novels, fantasy and science fiction, (laughs) so it doesn't have to sound like today's teens. I have written a couple of books that are set in the contemporary time period, and when I think about those voices... I really think of the characters as human beings first and teenagers second, if at all, to be honest. I mean, I think that the only difference between teens and other people of other ages is the amount of experience they've had in certain situations. So that is how I guide creating the voices for my characters I don't really think that it's necessary to actually put a lot of current slang in there. You know what I mean? Because that stuff dates so easily and it's very easy to go overboard (laughs) with that stuff. So I kind of try to stay away from it. Except interestingly with Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which was set in the 50s, I did deliberately use a few 50s era slang terms once in a while just to give it a kind of
1: flavor of the 1950s. Which I think would be important right? so that yeah, people understand yeah. that there—it's not now. It's, you know, set in a different time. Let's hear you read some from last night at the Telegraph Club. Your two characters are seeing each other for the first time.
0: They looked at each other, Kath with her shy half-smile and Lily with her earnestness. And there was such an unexpected feeling of openness between them, a flying kind of feeling as if they had lifted off from the ground right then and there. But then Kath flushed and looked away, and Lily was flooded with self-consciousness. She shifted her gaze toward the edge of the park where pedestrians were making their way around the grass. There were children running ahead of their mothers. There were a few couples. She was sharply aware of her heart beating in her chest, the air catching in her lungs when she breathed. A group of four young women probably in their early 20s, came walking down the sidewalk toward them, two of them in slacks, one pair arm in arm. Three of them were Caucasian, and one was possibly Mexican. One of the women in slacks had a debonair style to her in the way she walked, with her hands in her pockets and her eyes hidden behind sunglasses. The woman beside her, the darker one, with a head of glossy black curls, was looking at her with a pleased expression, But Lily couldn't tell if the woman was pleased with herself or admiring her companion. And then she slipped her hand around her friend's arm, their hips softly bumping together. And the woman in sunglasses turned her head and gave her a flirty little grin that struck Lily as shockingly bold. They were in public. Lily glanced surreptitiously at Kath to see if she had noticed... Kath seemed to be watching the girls, too, and there was something particularly studied about the bland expression on her face. Lily wondered if this was the moment they would finally talk about the Telegraph Club, but Kath seemed content to stay quiet. Was there something significant then in her silence? Lily felt as if the newspaper clipping and Kath's acknowledgement that she had gone to the club made an invisible chain linking her and Kath together. And every once in a while she heard the chain clink like silver against glass, a faint, resonant ring. Did Kath hear it? How could she not?
1: And yet Lily couldn't bring herself to speak of it. What would she even say? That's my guest, Melinda Lowe, reading from her YA book, Last Night at the Telegraph Club. If you're just tuning in, this is a special one-hour edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three authors of young adult or YA books. Crystal Maldonado, whose latest is Fat Chance, Charlie Vega. Brittany Morris, whose latest is The Cost of Knowing. And Melinda Lowe, whose latest is Last Night at the Telegraph Club. So your characters are set in realities that naturally bring to the surface some, quote, issues that are real and that lots of folks are grappling with. And, of course... Because this is a story in the way that you have been brilliant in telling the story, it is not a lecture. just want to be clear to my listeners that we're, nobody's getting a lecture in these books. But there's a lot of depth, Brittany, to uh, what you have brought to the cost of knowing. Let's begin with your dedication, which says, to all the Black boys who had to grow up too early, which gives a little bit of an indication that your characters, though, as you've described them, are dealing with some special powers to look forward and to look back actually have to deal with some stuff right now in a contemporary setting that some would have read about in the newspaper if they have not experienced personally.
3: So something I like to do with all of my books, really, is to take a conflict that maybe readers have heard about or read about that maybe aren't their own, and then add in elements that are sci-fi based, fantasy based, urban realism based, and get people to see these issues in a different light. So for instance, the school to prison pipeline, police brutality, slavery, the civil rights movement, intergenerational trauma, those are all concerns in the Black community that come up when talking about our pasts and our futures. So when we turn on the news and we see another instance of police brutality, there's an implied you could be next along with that. And so that can breed anxiety, of course, because we're thinking about our future, and what it could be. And like, it doesn't look too bright when you're looking at the news like that as a black person in America. And so the dedication was really, really important for me personally, because I wanted to write this book as a love letter to specifically black men who are facing these issues, because on top of having to deal with, you know, intergenerational trauma and anxiety about our future, They're also having to deal with all of that with toxic masculinity heaped upon them. So not only do they have to deal with these issues, but then they are expected to suppress their emotions and hide their feelings and not cry and, you know, be a man and, and take care of their family from a very young age, oftentimes. So With my first book, Slay, that was kind of more of a party book. It was a celebration of Blackness. It was a great time. And then with The Cost of Knowing, it's really specifically reaching out to Black men and saying, hey, I understand what a tall order it is to ask you to be a joyful person when you've got all of these things going on.
1: So I want you to read from page 70. We should say that Alex and his brother Isaiah live with their aunt, as you've said, and it's a gated community that's overwhelmingly white. This is one of the neighbors who they interact with who's been very pleasant to them, and yet uh, the boys have a larger understanding of, of how they fit in the universe.
3: Mrs. Zachary looks around, up and down the street, before stepping forward and continuing in a lowered voice, like she's telling a secret. You know, if you do decide to do a paper route, you could get some exercise and take Eli's old bike. We were about to sell it in a garage sale next Saturday, but if either of you can use it, it's yours. Isaiah and I look at each other. He's probably, like me, realizing how much money the Zacharies must have to just be handing out bikes like that. Back in East Garfield Park, you couldn't leave a bike chained up in the backyard without somebody jacking it. He looks past me again out the window to Mrs. Zachary, and I answer for both of us. Thank you, we'll let you know. She nods. And be safe out there, and don't stay out too late tonight, okay? You know with that concert tomorrow night, we're supposed to get all kinds of people around here. I'm used to it by now. The code switching, the two-facedness, the pretending to empathize with white people's concerns about shiv-skeptic concert goers. While in another reality, in which I mowed Mrs. Zachary's lawn several more times and could afford it, and I wasn't so scared stiff of huge crowds, I might be one.
1: That's my guest, Brittany Morris, reading from her book, The Cost of Knowing. Over to you, Melinda Lowe. Same thing in your book. In Last Night at the Telegraph Club, your main character is pretty much in her circle, in her outside circle at the Telegraph Club, the only Chinese person around whereas she has a very separate, close-knit Chinese community. So I wonder if you'd read from page 204, because there's some tension where she's trying to figure out, you know, who is she and how do we fit, and, and her friends are going through the same thing. Sure, yeah. I
0: mean, don't you ever wish you weren't Chinese? Shirley spoke in a low voice as if she were afraid to say it. You wouldn't have to live in Chinatown and you could do anything you wanted. You could go ice skating anytime. Lily looked at her friend. She had a slight scowl on her face as she watched the skaters. We could go ice skating if you want, Lily said. Shirley took a sip of her hot chocolate. No, I don't want to. That's not what I mean. It's just, ice skating is so silly. Why would anyone do it? For fun? Exactly. For fun. Shirley sounded bitter, which was unlike her. Is something bothering you? Lily asked. Did something happen? Shirley shrugged as if she were trying to slough off the black mood that had fallen over her. No, nothing. I just get tired of the the smallness of Chinatown, you know. Everybody knows everybody, and they're always poking their noses where they don't belong, and you can't do anything just for fun. Lily wasn't sure how to respond. She took the last few sips of her hot chocolate. It was too sweet now, and sugar coated her tongue like sand. Shirley was right. Lily felt those constraints, too. And yet, she also felt protective of Chinatown. She didn't want anyone to disparage it, not even Shirley. When they were children, Chinatown had seemed wonderfully free to Lily, a neighborhood full of friends with shopkeepers who would give her candied fruit and lumps of rock sugar. Of course everyone knew each other. It was like a densely packed little village, and her father was the well-respected village doctor. It was safe. Outside Chinatown was a different story. Everybody knew the boundaries. You stayed between California and Broadway, went no farther west than Stockton, and no farther east than Portsmouth Square. It wasn't until junior high, when she had to walk through North Beach to go to school, that Lily became comfortable with leaving Chinatown. Even then, she heard stories about Italian boys who beat up Chinese kids who made the mistake of wandering off Columbus Avenue.
1: That's my guest, Melinda Lowe, reading from Last Night at the Telegraph Club. So, Crystal Maldonado, you incorporated a number of coexisting tensions that uh, your main character, Charlie Vega, is struggling with being biracial, And I'm going to ask you to read from page 119 and ask you, I know you said at the outset that one of the reasons you wanted to write a book like this is because you hadn't seen anybody like yourself. And so it was with great intention that you wanted to bring to the fore some of the kinds of cultural issues that uh, your character would be dealing with.
2: Yeah, so I will get started. So my dad only had one younger sister, Titi but they had an ex- huge extended family with dozens and dozens of cousins, mostly from Puerto Rico. I think half of the people he called his cousins weren't really his cousins at all, just friends who had become like family. They had carved out their own little community in this, let's be honest, otherwise pretty white area of Connecticut. And someone was always finding a reason to get together, eat and drink. My mom liked to joke that they'd throw a party whenever someone sneezed. Wepa. As a kid, I always felt super out of place at these parties. Though I was surrounded by people who looked like me, I still felt like an outsider. They all spoke English and Spanish, for one. Poppy almost never spoke Spanish at home, so I only ever picked up on a few words here and there. Plus, they all seemed so comfortable together, laughing and dancing to Latin music. The adults drank and traded may. the younger kids did a lot of running around and playing games, and the older kids would just kind of hang out. I'd sometimes try to join my cousins who were around my age, but I always felt awkward. It's not even like they were mean to me or anything. I just felt too embarrassed for liking One Direction and Taylor Swift, for speaking like a white person, their words, rather than with an accent, for going to school in a super white town and having mostly white friends. Truth be told, I sometimes even felt like I was better than them. Getting a better education in my white-ass town, speaking perfect English. How messed up is that? They knew two languages, and there I was thinking that I was hot shit because I knew what an Oxford comma was. Hey, internalized racism, how you doing?
1: That's my guest, Crystal Maldonado, reading from Fat Chance, Charlie Vega. If you're just tuning in, this is our special one-hour Under the Radar with Callie Crossley for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. My guests are Crystal Maldonado, author of Fat Chance, Charlie Vega, Brittany Morris, author of The Cost of Knowing, and Melinda Lowe, author of Last Night at the Telegraph Club. All three books are young adult or YA fiction. Uh, Melinda Lowe, the adults in these books... It's the 1950s. There is Chinese racism and there were threats to immigrants like the father in your book. So how do you see the importance of the adult characters? I mean, in your book, particularly last night at the Telegraph Club, the father is, you know, it's it's a dangerous situation. I mean, he could have been deported.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. So my book is a little bit unusual because there are several scenes that are from the perspective of the adults. So you get you get a, a chapter from the father's perspective and a chapter from the mother's perspective, and I think two from her uh, Lily's aunt Judy's perspective. So I I really wanted to include those scenes because I knew that things were affecting Lily's life that she was not directly involved in. Um, growing up in a Chinese American family, the parents really would try to keep that stuff away from her. (laughs) They're they're not going to sit down and tell her about immigration issues or, uh, or various other adult things that they don't believe she needs to deal with. They want her to study, you know? And so I still thought it was important for the reader to know what was happening and to know what kinds of things were influencing her parents' decisions, which they will make once they find out what's happening with Lily. So that's why I included those scenes.
1: And um I'm just curious about how readers have responded to adult characters in your book. Do you find that your young audience really understands that and resonates with that?
0: You know, I I don't really know because I have no idea how old the people are who <laughs> communicate with me. So I I can tell you that I've had adult readers who have told me that they were really fascinated by the chapters with Aunt Judy which I love because I'm a big fan of Aunt Judy. She's one of my favorite characters in the book. I've also heard from readers who did not really enjoy those chapters. But yeah, you, can, yeah. you know, I think that some readers only want the story to be about Lily and her, her uh, relationship with Kath. But for me, the story is about more than a romance. It is about her family and about the forces that push them to do things, uh, including, frankly, World War II which had a major impact on immigration and her family's decisions. The McCarthy hearings, which at the time in the 1950s, "Red China" as they called it, was a big deal, you know, and a, a fear of communism really affected the way that the authorities, the police, the FBI treated Chinese Americans. And so for me, it was just really important
1: to include that stuff in there. <laughs> and um, Brittany, we've discussed the white neighbor and her impact as, as an adult in the in your book, The Cost of Knowing. But there's also an aunt that they live with. But I'm also always interested in the fact that it seems in YA novels, the, the young characters or the young leads are either working against the adults or they don't want to share what's happening because they don't think the adults will understand what's happening with them. There's a lot of that. And there's a little bit of that in um, in your book, and it's interesting. I think when they finally realize, you know, at some points that the aunt actually, oh, hello, has lived this experience and does know some things.
3: Definitely. So between generations, especially in the Black community, there's there tends to be some disconnects. Um, I think, I, I mean, this has been my experience to, just with talking to my parents and grandparents, and you know, the world changes, but. Racism largely doesn't. (laughs) And so it rears its ugly head in every generation that comes up. And so the whole book, or most of the book, Alex goes through life thinking that, you know, if I tell anybody about my anxiety about the future, about these powers, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to tell me to man up. They're not going to understand. I'm just going to embarrass myself. Nobody can help me fix this. And so why even share my problems, right? And then there's a moment where Aunt Mackie, after learning about what Alex is going through to some degree, says, you know, I deal with the world seeing me in a particular way, too. She's an affluent real estate agent. Uh, Her face is on billboards across Chicago, and she drives a fancy car. And even, you know, driving the car that she does and living in the neighborhood that she does she still feels targeted by racism. Um, a lot of people tend to believe that having money or affluence or speaking a certain way or dressing a certain way kind of absolves you from having to deal with those issues, but not really. And so that was a really, really cool moment between two generations, between Aunt Mackie and Alex, that I felt was really important to bring
1: up in the book. hmm Crystal, in your book, of course, Charlie is really pushing against her mom. So in your book, it feels like the mother has a particular role and framework in Charlie's story.
2: Absolutely. So I think that Charlie and her mom have this really... Interesting relationship where they have high highs and low lows. Sometimes you really do have this contentious push and pull with somebody that you love, someone that is a family member. And so I wanted to show what that's like and how that plays out and how, you know, your parental figure or your family member might have the best intentions and they think oh i'm i'm helping and that is certainly charlie's mom's view where she makes these comments to charlie about charlie's body and she thinks this would help charlie and charlie feels the complete opposite way and doesn't receive those comments well and really wants to work on just loving herself for who she is and so it's almost like they're talking past each other and not hearing one another i wanted to portray that because Adults don't always know the best things to say or do, and they make mistakes sometimes. And I think that's an important message that Charlie has to go through and sort of figure that out and figure out how do you have this relationship? How do you move forward? And how do you coexist peacefully when, you know, she lives in her mom's house, she's not going anywhere for mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've got to learn to make it work. Coming
1: up, we're continuing our hour-long August edition of Bookmark, the Under the Radar Book Club. Our special guests are three authors whose work features young protagonists. Authors Crystal Maldonado, Brittany Morris, and Melinda Lowe write intimate stories which illuminate larger life issues. More of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. It's our special August edition of Bookmark, the Under the Radar book club. And we're talking with writers who craft stories of interior longings and external bravado, tales of journeys featuring young people discovering who they are. Authors Crystal Maldonado, Brittany Morris, and Melinda Lowe are joining me for this hour-long conversation about YA fiction and nonfiction, which is also extremely popular with adult audiences. Let me ask this. What do you love about the response of your readers to your stories? Again, the works are targeted to a young audience. They happen to attract others. But for your young audience, Brittany, what really gets to you when they read your work and feel very connected?
3: I always love to hide little treasures throughout my books. So there will be like little references to things and um, Easter eggs and sometimes even connections to my other books. And whenever readers find those, I just get so tickled.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) This is your first experience, Crystal, but what have you been enjoying hearing back from readers?
2: Honestly, anytime someone reaches out and says they liked my book, I do a little dance because I'm so excited, Um, but young readers, especially hearing from them and feeling like I was able to tell this story that they could relate to. I've heard from a couple of teen readers who have picked this book up, solely because of the cover, because Charlie looks like them. Mm. Um, And so they've had this experience of finally feeling like they get to be that beautiful heroine and get to have that love story. I wanted to make this story that felt like it represented folks who didn't get that representation that they so deeply deserve and desire.
1: Melinda, has the response to this book, Last Night at the Telegraph Club, been different from your others? I mean, you go to many subgenres in telling your YA stories. So, what about this one maybe resonating with readers in a different way?
0: Well, uh, it's true. I write across many different genres, but all of my YA books are about uh, queer girls. So, Actually, the response to Telegraph Club has has been in in the same vein as all of these. All of, most of my feedback, which has been really so moving, readers of all ages actually have have written to me to say that they read about a lesbian or bisexual teen girl coming out for the first time with my books, and they have told me that um, my books helped them to feel less alone. That it was okay for them to be gay. Uh, that they could fall in love with someone, that there was someone out there for them, and that there were you know, positive directions for their life to go in. It's been truly humbling to see over the years these kinds of responses. And I think I get them from readers of all ages because we have not always been able to come out as teenagers and as adults. Sometimes it can be very affirming to read a book about a young queer person coming out and to kind of live their life vicariously through fiction. And it can be really healing in a way. So I've just been so moved by the way my readers have told me about their lives. And I'm so happy that they have been
1: able to connect with my stories. So what must a YA book have that makes it specifically YA? As I think about, for example, adult romances, there is a formula. And if I were to pick up an adult romance and there was no happily ever after, I would be mad because that's what my understanding of that genre is. What do you each think about what must be a part of this kind of writing targeted to this kind of audience. And Crystal, since you're brand new, you had to think about this as you began to write this first book of YA. So what do you think?
2: I think a lot of feelings (laughs) have to be part of the book. Um, So going on this journey, feeling like this character that we've just met is someone that we can root for in some kind of way so that when they experience something since So often YA books are written from the um, first person perspective, not always, but, but often we want to feel like we can get into that character's head and relate to what they're going through. So for me, the feelings are at the forefront of, and we ride that journey with that character. And we really have a lot of the plot that's driven by emotion, um, which I think is really true to when you are in that age group, you make a lot of decisions based on your heart and based on what hurts or what feels good. So I definitely write with my heart and I hope readers pick it up and they feel with their heart and they follow along on that journey of, of feelings for better or for worse.
1: <laughs> Same question to you, Brittany.
2: Something that makes a
3: YA book great is lots and lots of questions. So if I'm writing for teenagers, I don't necessarily want to put a whole bunch of answers in my books. I really just want to expand my reader's mind and get them to ask questions that maybe they hadn't thought of before.
1: Okay. How about you, Melinda? Well, so my books tend to
0: especially Telegraph Club has had kind of a, a crossover audience with adult readers. So this is an interesting question because I think that in the past I thought very much that a YA book, it came from the perspective of a young teenager, it was certainly focused on them and like Crystal says, a lot of feelings, very emotionally driven <laughs> narrative, um, quick, you know, quick pacing. And I that's how I thought about it in the past. And now with Telegraph Club and the next book, I'm I'm really starting to question whether those are necessary, honestly. I think that a YA novel, in a way, is a YA novel if it is published by a YA publisher, mm. <laughs> because real teenagers in the real world obviously experience the world differently depending on their their where they're from, who they are. Their personalities. Not every teenager talks like a teenager on TV. Some people speak, you know, very archaic long sentences. That was me. That was me as a teenager. I was a total nerd, right? So there are so many ways to live life as a young person. And I don't know that YA as a category of book necessarily needs to be limited to one type of storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think the majority of YA focuses on a certain type of very emotionally forward storytelling, but I don't believe that that is necessarily always true. Okay.
1: Now, each of you, as it happens, are, you know, from marginalized communities. So we've got Melinda, you're Chinese. Brittany, you are African-American. And Crystal, you are biracial, half Puerto Rican. I mention that because the world of publishing and the stories that are published are generally not those that reflect the communities that you represent. So to each of you, how important is it that you all are writing these stories not necessarily from your perspective, but certainly from your lived experience, which gives you some foundation for wanting to tell some of these stories. Crystal, you've been very upfront about that was your motivation. How important is it to have you and others like you doing this writing?
2: I think it's among I think the most important, especially in YA when our readers can be impressionable and are still figuring the world out and questioning themselves and questioning society in the best way. So I think when we are able to control the stories that we share, so my story is about a Puerto Rican girl, she's plus size, she, you know, has these identities, and I have Experience with that. So I am going to take care when I'm telling those stories. When I'm there's nuance that goes into these lived experiences, right? And so we never want to write stories that might add to stereotyping or might be harmful in some kind of way. And so I think there really is a delicacy in like a balance that you have to kind of take as a writer where you're covering these stories from a first person perspective and you're making sure that you are doing it justice and you're you're telling a very positive portrayal and that's what you're sort of creating and so even if the reader that picks the story up isn't exactly like Charlie they pick it up and they maybe feel like they know a Charlie or they know a little more I like to think of that that saying about windows and mirrors when it comes to books so we want to make things that hold up a mirror to people who don't otherwise get that representation Or otherwise, open that window and provide a glimpse into a life other than our own and help us learn something. So I try to keep that in mind when I'm when I'm writing.
1: Brittany, and I want to note, Brittany, uh, in your answer, if you could respond to this. Your book has a content advisory warning because, you know, there's a lot going on. Again, we're not giving any spoilers. Did you ask for that? And, you know, I just want to make sure that you you're comfortable with that.
3: Yeah, I absolutely did. Uh, Because this book features Alex, who has acute anxiety and struggles with a whole lot of stress. (laughs) Um, I didn't want to write a book that would possibly trigger people with anxiety. I have clinical anxiety myself and depression. So I certainly didn't want to make matters worse by offering this book to the world and hurting people. So I asked for that.
1: All right. So how important is it for folks like yourself to be writing Um, These stories and others and to be coming from your own lived experience.
3: So, so important. I think if I wasn't plugged into uh, different groups related to being black and being anxious, I would I might not have ever known there was this much crossover and that there are other people out there in the world who have similar experiences to mine. Um, And that was really a big feature of my childhood, actually. Growing up, I was the only Black kid at my school and my entire town mostly. And so I felt so, so alone in my experience as a Black person. I felt like I was the only Black girl who had never tried fried catfish and who didn't know who Usher was and (laughs) just so many many different things that people expected of me. And I just felt so, so alone most of my childhood. And um, I think... My hope with writing Slay and with writing The Cost of Knowing and um, so many other things that I've written is that readers will read my books and see themselves in them um, and know that they're not alone and that their experience as a Black person is valid and totally okay Um, and that they are Black enough because I grew up thinking that I wasn't.
1: Mm. Melinda. Mm Hmm.
0: Yeah. So I've been doing this a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, My first book came out in 2009. And for for many years, I was very involved um, in advocating for uh, increasing diversity in YA with my little organization, Diversity in YA. Uh, And I've done a lot of work in this area. I think that what I have always wanted to advocate for is the ability for writers of color, queer writers, disabled writers, writers from marginalized religious backgrounds, for all of us to have the freedom to write whatever we want, just as straight white writers do, you know? I don't want us to be limited to telling stories about our marginalizations. I want us to be able to tell stories about people as they are in reality. I don't want us to be forced to only tell educational, positive, uplifting stories. You know, sometimes people do bad things. And I think it's important to be able, as a writer and an artist, to tell stories that are about people who make mistakes, who are not perfect, who uh, maybe make bad, bad choices on purpose from time to time. Mm-hmm. Because those are things that mainstream straight white writers are able to do all the time without apology. And I think that it is important for all of us to have that same
1: right as
0: writers and artists.
1: I will say, you all did something, it's one of my favorite things. Now, I have a term I've made up for it called Juno Diazation, (laughs) in reference to the author Juno Diaz, who, when he writes Spanish into his books, he does not explain it. There's a contextual explaining, but you just go with the flow. That's his character. You figure it out. And um, all of you have done that. So, obviously, in your book, Melinda, you have not only some Chinese words, but you have some, at the bottom of the page, Some the characters, the Chinese actual Chinese characters are very interesting to look at. In your book, Crystal, you've got the Spanish and the Spanglish going on that's, you know, sprinkled throughout. And in your book, Brittany, you have a lot of cultural references that, you know, contextually, we as readers, if we didn't know, can figure it out. But I, I like that. It's very uh, part of the fabric of the stories. And for me, I enjoyed it. I, I assume all of you were very intentional about it. I know you were, Melinda, and about the Chinese characters.
0: Yes, absolutely. It was difficult to Romanize them in long sentences.
1: Mm-hmm. It would have just looked so weird. <laughs> so the characters actually looked more normal. All right. Um, Brittany, you did it intentionally? Yes, very
3: intentionally. In fact, my editor was behind me the whole way with Slay. Um, there were so many times when my... My poor line editors and proofreaders who have to read the book so, so closely and catch all of my tiny mistakes would say, do we need to explain this? Is this a cultural element we need to explain? And my editor was like, Stet, Stet, nope,
2: we're good. They either get it or they don't.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Crystal, I know that was important for you.
2: Absolutely. So as a reader, when I am reading books and I see a word that's in another language or something that is explicitly spelled out, it takes me completely out of the story. And it makes me think, about, well, who is this reader that we're feeling like we have to explain it for? And so I wanted to just have some Spanglish in there because that was my experience growing up. And I think that is what a lot of people can relate to. And that's the reader I'm writing it for. And I figure everyone else can sort of figure it out, use some context clues. And if not, there's always Google.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you. All right. A question I ask all my authors. What do you want your reader to take away? It can be anything you like. I'll start with you, Brittany. Ooh, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm
3: happy enough when people are reading my book, so to take away from something is icing on the cake. But I I do hope people see something from the book in a different way, whether it be a lot of the bigger issues like racism and police brutality or even something like maybe a friend with a mental illness that they maybe don't understand, or a new way to approach someone's culture, like the culture of somebody who's different from them. Any little thing, um, as long as it gets them asking questions, gets them to see different issues in a different light, and think about anything differently, I'm happy.
0: Melinda? Well, for Telegraph Club, you know, depictions of the lesbian community, the lesbian bar scene have in, in fiction has often been full of pain and trauma. And I, I want readers of this book to understand what Lily sees in it. I want them to see how electric and thrilling and sexy it is to go to this kind of club and to find her community for the first time. I just want them to feel how, how great it
1: feels, you know. And for you, Crystal.
2: So I hope readers pick up this book and finish it and walk away feeling a little bit more empathetic towards themselves, towards their bodies, and maybe challenge some of those inner monologues that they have going on in their minds and just really feel like they deserve greatness because I really believe that they deserve good things.
1: All right. Last question to all of you. Next book in the same kind of mode or are you doing something different? How about you, Melinda? Well, I always do something different.
0: So I'm doing something different. Um, It is it's going to be sort of a contemporary novel. um, But it is set in 2013. Mm. So I don't I don't know. I don't think that counts as historical just yet. (laughs) Okay, Brittany. So my next book
3: is called The Jump. It comes out in 2023. And it's about four Seattle teens who run a cryptology forum. And they compete in a cryptology contest for political influence and high-tech resources that they plan to use to take down an oil refinery going up in their neighborhood. So it's a lot of techie fun like Slay um, and it's a lot of you know young people questioning the world as it is and not taking no for an answer like in The Cost of Knowing. So it's a little bit of both and also
1: very different. Okay, Crystal?
2: So my next YA book is A Slight Departure from a Rom-Com, but it's still contemporary and it follows a girl who is really obsessed with social media and desperately wants to get some clout on Instagram, but keeps failing at it. Um, And so then after getting really frustrated one night, she steals a friend's photos and starts catfishing on Instagram as her friend. And it gets her into loads of trouble, as one might imagine. Um, So it deals with a lot of, you know, social media, just perceptions, images, all of those good feelings that I think we all deal with all the time.
1: Well, I want to thank all three of you for joining me in this delightful conversation. I loved all of your books, and I know that readers will enjoy them as well. And I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Crystal Maldonado is the author of Fat Chance Charlie Vega, her debut YA novel. Brittany Morris is the author of The Cost of Knowing, her second YA novel. And Melinda Lowe is the author of Last Night at the Telegraph Club, her sixth young adult novel. All are perfect additions to your summer reading list in this last month of summer. That's it for this week's special one-hour edition of Under the Radar. We're on the web at WGBH.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubelie and engineered by Dave Goodman. Iptisam Imaliki is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxys, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.